Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week, our episode was derailed, so to speak, by the breaking news of Anand Syed's conviction being reinstated. But today, it's time to pick back up where we left off, 59 pages into the trial testimony of Detective James Doucet. At the conclusion of last week's episode, we were in the middle of Colleen Barnett's play-by-play presentation of Sandy's police interrogation video. We ended with Barnett pointing out to the jury that Sandy was unable or unwilling to provide Doucet and Carazal with any viable leads as to who might have murdered her husband. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As DeSay's testimony continues, he correctly explains the concentric circle method of investigation. What's happening on the screen at this point is the detective telling Sandy that it's protocol for investigators to begin their investigation with the people closest to the victim. Typically, the next step is to work outward from there. Although in this case, that never happened. In fact, DeSay and Carazal never even completed a thorough investigation of Sandy. As you're aware, they never interviewed her again. Never spoke with any other family members or friends other than Carlos Espinoza. They never investigated the Melgar's financial records or even bothered to read paramedic Stephanie Roberts' report. Next up, we have another careful word choice by Barnett. She's asking to say about the part in the interview where Sandy talks about how she's planning a trip to San Antonio and Jim wasn't going to go with her. But Barnett doesn't say that Sandy explained the situation or that she told Doucet why Jim wasn't planning on tagging along. Instead, she frames it this way, quote, and she does give you excuses for why he's not going to go, end quote. Giving excuses sounds a lot more inculpatory than merely stating a fact. But let's actually take a minute to explore this exchange. 
Barnett is using the fact that Jim wasn't going to go with Sandy as an indicator that there was a problem in the marriage. But in reality, there was no reason for Sandy to share this information at all, other than to provide as much information as possible to the detectives. At this point, Jim is dead. He's gone. He wasn't around to correct her. She could have said that the two of them were planning to make this into a romantic road trip. But instead, she does what she's been doing throughout the entire interview. Just telling the truth. Next up, Sandy says that Jim is a vegetarian and wants her to cut back on eating beef. But according to the Los Cucos receipt, the two meals purchased were fish and steak. Another lie by Sandy. Except, it's not. What she actually said is that he does eat meat sometimes, and when she was asked what they each ordered for dinner, before the receipt had materialized, she said that she had the fish and Jim had the steak. This entire direct examination is smoke and mirrors, intended to tell the jury what to think instead of just letting them listen and draw their own conclusions. Barnett carefully chooses where to stop the tape, and she uses just the right words to make the innocuous look nefarious. There's a part in the interview where Sandy gets confused and doesn't remember the question that the detectives asked her. Barnett stops the tape and asks Doucet about it. Quote, You just asked her, what did you do next? Doucet, yes. And she hesitates. Yes. And says she doesn't remember what you asked. That's correct. Barnett presses play again. Played out without commentary, all I see is an upset and confused woman. But isolated and highlighted, it looks like a woman who's dodging questions. Barnett talks a little bit about the types of alcohol around the tub. And then she seems to get to the part of the interview where Doucet asked Sandy whose idea it was for the dogs to have puppies. If you remember, at that point, Sandy chuckled a little bit and said it was the dog's idea. Barnett pauses the tape and asks, quote, did she laugh at that point? Doucet. Yes. Then she hits play again. As she moves forward, Barnett tries to spin some of Sandy's statements to appear as though she and Jim were having marital problems. Jim wanted her to stop eating meat, but Sandy didn't want to. Jim liked massages, but Sandy preferred pedicures. Really, in the grand scheme of things, I find it telling that Barnett has to reach this far to try to find something, anything that even slightly resembles a motive. I killed my spouse because they wanted me to stop eating meat. I mean, give me a break. Next, we have another example of Sandy changing her story again. In Sandy's first run through of the events of the night, she originally says she's guessing it might have been 15 or 20 minutes that she waited for Jim to return from getting the dogs. But now in this next run, where of course Barnett stops the tape again, this time she says maybe it was five minutes. Barnett speculates as to why, quote, five minutes to black out leaves less time to hear Jamie being stabbed, I take it, end quote. She continues on to point out changes in Sandy's story, mostly to do with times. In doing so, Barnett never draws attention to the fact that Sandy repeatedly says she's just guessing at all the times. This testimony was well thought out and pre-planned. She knows just where she wants to stop the tape. And it becomes obvious that Barnett was obviously working off of the transcripts of the interview rather than the actual audio. We know this because several months back, I talked about some of the transcription errors, one of which was a place where the transcript says that Sandy mentions that she drank too much that night, but when you listen, she says nothing of the sort. 
And of course, this is one of the places where Barnett stops the tape and points out that earlier Sandy said she didn't drink very much, and now she says she drank too much. Except, she didn't actually say that. Nonetheless, Doucet confirms that she did. Any detail that is available to spin is indeed spun by Barnett. At one point, the detectives asked Sandy if Jim has ever told any of his family members that he was going to leave Sandy. She answers emphatically no. But Barnett pauses the tape to point out that she, quote, hesitated before answering. And then Doucet says that he was surprised by this. I've asked you to do this before, but I'll ask you again. Put yourself in the jury's shoes here. The prosecutor and the detective are telling you what you're hearing. In reality, none of it amounts to a hill of beans. We've heard from everyone who was close to Jim and Sandy, family members and friends alike, and there was no way that Jim was planning to leave Sandy. The fact that she pauses for a second means precisely nothing. Our next stop is a pause to talk about Sandy's recollection of slipping and Jim grabbing her arm. Barnett asked to say if that would cause a bruise to her arm. He says that it shouldn't have. Well, first of all, how the fuck would Doucet know the precise amount of pressure necessary to cause a bruise on Sandy Melgar's arm? He wouldn't. That's the answer you were looking for. And aside from that, she said that he grabbed her right arm. The bruise in question was on her left. But rather than just let the jury hear that play out, they got a stop, commentary, start look at the video, where it looks like she's trying to explain away the bruise with the arm grab. And then Barnett wraps up the video by asking Doucet if he watched the parts after he and Corazal ended the interview and left the room. He says that he did, and she asks if Sandy started crying after he was gone. Doucet, quote, There was some theatrics, but again, I saw no tears. End quote. Theatrics, he says. Do you think that there is any chance that the jury walked away from this believing that Sandy was genuinely upset? Yeah, me neither. After the video is done playing, Barnett introduces some of Sandy's medical records into evidence. I'll spare you all of the details and give you the short version. She begins with a doctor's report from 2008 and goes over everyone from then through 2012 and points out all the times where the doc writes that Sandy's seizures are stable. But here's the thing about that. Let's assume for a minute that Sandy is lying when she says that she does have occasional seizures but doesn't tell her doctor about them. Let's say that she really hadn't had a single seizure for the four years leading up to the murder. Just take it as a fact that her medication was controlling them. So what does that actually tell us about what happened on the night Jim was killed? It's a fact that Sandy has epilepsy. You can't dispute that. It's also a fact that seizures can be triggered by a lot of things. Stress, dehydration, exhaustion, a blow to the head, just to name a few. To help you relate to this, let me tell you a little story. A true story. I had a good friend in college whose brother had pretty severe epilepsy. He was a few years younger than my friend and I, and he was always frustrated that he wasn't able to drive because of his seizures. About five years after I met him, he finally got his driver's license in his early 20s. His doctors had found a medication combination that was effectively controlling his seizures, just like Sandy. Then sadly, a few years later, I received word from my friend that her brother was killed in a car accident, and his passenger was badly injured. The young man hadn't had a seizure in years. One day he was just driving along, and out of nowhere he went into a grand mall seizure. The seizure resulted in the car accident that tragically took his life and badly injured his friend. 
The autopsy revealed that he had taken his medication as normal. There was no explanation for why he had the seizure after years of not having one. All the doctor could tell my friend is that when you're epileptic, even when your medication seemed to be working, you will always be at risk of having a seizure, even if you haven't had one for years. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Barnett's big reveal is that in July of 2012, Sandy had a doctor's appointment, and the doctor's notes state that Sandy has not had any seizures. Then in September of 2012, it looks like Sandy missed an appointment, and then the next entry is in April of 2013, so almost four months after Jim's murder. The note on that report states, according to Ducey's testimony, I don't have the actual report, quote, had not had any seizure episodes, end quote. Barnett draws attention to the fact that according to these reports, Sandy had not reported having any seizures from July of 2012, five months before the murder, and April of 2013, four months after the murder. This is relevant because if her implication is correct, Sandy had reported to her doctor that she had not had a seizure on the night Jim was killed. No seizures between July and April means no seizures on December 22nd. This was devastating testimony. It, at the very least, calls into question Sandy's inference that she doesn't remember anything from the night Jim was killed because she likely had a seizure. But personally, I think it's a pretty long leap to come to that conclusion. Let's look at that note from April of 2013, the doctor's appointment from four months after the murder. The note says, again, according to Ducey, quote, has not had any seizure episodes, end quote. My first question would be, since when? Certainly no one is claiming that Sandy never had a seizure. She has epilepsy and she's on anti-seizure medications. So we can't assume that has not had any seizure episodes means that Sandy has never had a seizure. So with that frame of reference in mind, how far back are we going? It had been four months since the night Jim was killed when Sandy went to this doctor's appointment. Even if she hadn't had a seizure since, let's say, February, two months prior, and the doc asked her if she's had any recent seizures one might expect Sandy to reply that she hasn't had any recently. And we also know that it's very common for epileptics to not tell their doctors about seizures for a variety of reasons. So personally, I don't see these notes in the doctor's reports to be any kind of smoking gun as they were presented. And aside from that, 
There's a crucial doctor's report from four days after the murder where Sandy did tell her doctor that she thinks she had a seizure on the night Jim was killed. And lastly, let's not forget that Sandy has never said that she had a seizure. She said that based on the way she felt when she woke up in the closet, combined with her lack of memory, leads her to believe that she might have had a seizure. I mean, what did Barnett expect Sandy to say to her doctor that April? Well, I think I might have had a seizure four months ago on the night my husband was killed, but I'm not sure. No one wants to have that conversation. Direct examination ends with Barnett asking Doucet why he and Carazal are pretending to be Jim calling out for help at the end of the tape. I'm sure you remember this part from our episode, No Mercy. Could you hear him? No, I couldn't hear him. Could you hear him yelling for help? No. Could you hear him screaming? I didn't hear him. When he was in pain. We know that. He suffered a lot. I need you to help me. I need you to help me. I need you to help me on this. Can you help me? I need you to help me. Sandra, can you help me? I didn't hear anything. I need help, Sandra. Please help me. Screaming after screaming after screaming, he's in pain. I need help. Help me, Sandra. Help me. Tell me. Your husband's a nice guy. He went through a lot of pain. Help me. Sandra, I need help. Please help me, Sandra. Sandra, help me. Sandra, I need help. I didn't hear anything. Stop already. I need help, Sandra. I need help. Help me. That's it. That's it. I, I, I need a lawyer. I, I'm not talking anymore because you guys are just trying to torture me here. Doucet explains that this was a tactic. From the transcript. That's a tactic. I mean, we're trying to see her response. We've not seen any tears up to that point, and we're trying to check for a response. End quote. Doucet got a response all right. He managed to take a person who was willing to talk and was willing to share whatever she could to help him with his investigation, and he shut her right down. That was the end of the interview, and that was also the end of direct examination. Mac opens up cross-examination with a subtle jab at Doucet's assessment of Sandy's demeanor during her interview. It's impossible to tell from the transcripts, but I'm really curious if anyone else got the joke. Quote, Let me ask you a few questions. I'll be moving some stuff around so you and I can keep eye contact. End quote. Right from the beginning, I'm getting the impression that this cross-examination is going to lean towards hostile. Mac first makes clear to the jury that Doucet is not an FBI agent. We heard last week that he was part of an FBI task force, and Mac is just making sure it's clear that Doucet is just working with the FBI. He's not an actual agent. 
I'm sure the assumption being that the jury would apply more weight and credibility to his testimony if he thought he was an FBI agent. Nonetheless, the matter was cleared up, and Mac moved on to Sandy's medical records. He's sort of working backwards from Barnett's direct examination. During this segment, we discover that Doucet never bothered to even look at Sandy's medical records during his investigation, which really adds a lot of context for us as we're trying to figure out how not only Sandy was convicted, but even how she was ever charged and arrested. Doucet and Corazal assumed Sandy was lying about blacking out and not having any memory of who attacked her and killed Jim, without a shred of direct evidence to support that theory. Through this testimony, we discover that zero attempt was made to either prove or disprove her story. As some sit back today and question how sick Sandy actually was, it's startling to realize that the investigators didn't seem to question her health at all. One would think that if Doucet didn't believe Sandy was telling the truth, he would have made at least some effort to prove his theory. Of course, the other possibility is that he was afraid that actually investigating the issue further would actually weaken his case. I mean, why let a little thing like the truth stop you from destroying a woman's life in the wake of just losing her husband of 32 years? Mac moves on to point out something that I hadn't noticed previously. During Doucet's entire direct examination, the lead investigator, Sean Corazal's name, was never spoken once. Which is impressive, considering it was Corazal who was actually the one asking a lot of the questions that Barnett and Doucet talked about. She made it all the way through direct without ever acknowledging that he even exists. And Mac wants to know why. We find out early on that Corazal and Doucet were actually childhood friends. And then Mac begins to really pick apart the direct testimony, beginning with the camera on the garage across the street from the Melgar's home. During direct, Barnett stopped the tape at that part of the interview where Doucet is telling Sandy that the camera covers her front door. He continues on to say that he later figured out that the camera actually only showed the Esmond's driveway. But Mac has an issue with that. He presents Doucet with one of the police reports, Supplement 21, and directs his attention to the entry that states that he checked the camera and knew that it only covered the top of the Esmond's driveway at 6.30 p.m. on the night Jim's body was found, before he told Sandy that it showed the front door of her house. Now understand that Supreme Court precedent does allow investigators to lie to individuals that they're interviewing. There's no problem with them doing that at all. The issue is that he told the jury that he didn't know what the camera covered when he was interviewing Sandy, when he clearly already did know. That he cannot do. That is called perjury. But rest assured, Doucet gets around this by saying that he hadn't confirmed that yet when he was talking to Sandy. The Esmonds had told him that the camera didn't cover the Melgar's home, but he hadn't seen the tape for himself yet. Seacrest moves on to clearing up some misconceptions from direct examination. And this is exactly what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago in the Parallel Universe episode. Every time a law enforcement officer testifies in this case, they twist and manipulate facts to help out the prosecution's case. Then we have to spend, in some cases, days in cross-examination to get to the actual truth. And Doucet is no exception. The next item on Mac's agenda is the bruise on Sandy's arm. During direct, it was made to seem as though she was using the story of her falling and Jim catching her as the cause of the bruise. Mac points out, and Doucet concedes, and yes, I intentionally chose the word concedes here, 
that Sandy never did that. She told the story of the fall, but she indicated that Jim grabbed her in a completely different area, nowhere near the bruise in question. Matt continues on about the bruises on Sandy's arms, but to be honest, it feels like he missed the mark to me. He introduces the photos of her forearms with the obvious ligature marks, and he questions Usay about them, but he never actually drives his point home. The line of questioning ends up focusing more on Sandy's fall by the tub, and less about the fact that the bruises exist in the exact places where Herman Melgar testifies that Sandy was tied up. Doucet admits that she had several bruises on her arms, and Max seems like he's going there because he follows up with a question about Herman and the fact that neither Doucet or Carazal interviewed him, but then he just moves on. From the transcript, it reads to me like he set up a blow, but he never actually threw the punch. Next, we circle back to what is probably the most important element of the state's case, the lack of forced entry. Mac wants to talk about the garage doors. From the transcript, Mac, you spoke to, you all interviewed Slow Esman again, the individual that has security camera that takes a wonderful picture of his driveway, but nothing else. Y'all interviewed him, didn't you? I did not. Okay, but you're aware, you're certainly aware of the reports that have documented what information he had, right? Yes. And of course, that information provided to you guys that the garage door had been seen open even at midnight. You know that to be the case. You don't have to agree with it, but there were accounts that the door was open a lot earlier before you guys got there. That's a fair statement, isn't it? Do say. Okay. Mac, I take it your position is going to be before our jury that that's the reason you went over it several times that Sandy Melgar definitely declared that those garage doors were down. Therefore, somebody couldn't have come through those doors unless somehow they opened it some other way. Is that right? Doucet. Yes. Seacrest continues on for a while about the garage door, and this is important. There's a glaring issue with the state's theory that everyone seems to be ignoring, and that's the problem with a suspect or theory-driven investigation. All of the law enforcement officers that testify harp continually on the fact that there were no apparent signs of forced entry. And I would almost go as far as agreeing with that statement, although the back door does show some signs of tampering. But it's nothing definitive, so I'll concede that likely no one forced the back door. But we're missing a step here. Before we determine if anyone forced their way into the house, first we have to determine if they needed to. As a fire investigator, there were two very basic elements to my job. Find the point of origin of the fire, where it started, and then determine the cause of the fire, how it started. The same logic applies to this criminal investigation. Step one should be determine where someone could gain entrance into the house, and then step two is to figure out how someone could enter through that path of ingress. Rather than theorize, let's look at what we know, what we actually know. We know that when Herman and his family arrived on the scene, they wanted to go inside just like a home invader would. Herman saw an easy path of ingress through the garage door. It was wide open. So he walks through the garage and then he comes to the interior door between the garage and the house. It was unlocked. He walked through it and he was in. So we know for a fact that there was a very simple path of ingress into the house available. We also know that there was an even simpler method of entering the house through that path. No forced entry was required because the door was unlocked. Knowing that makes the argument about signs of forced entry moot. Why would someone go through the trouble to break through a door 
when they could just walk right in through the garage. Herman proved that it was possible, even for a man with a severe disability. The garage door could have been the reason the Melgars were targeted to begin with. Remember what Jim Clemente always says, every offender picks a particular victim in a particular place at a particular time for a particular reason. In his profile, Jim pointed out several counter-indications of staging, meaning the scene reads to him as a home invasion rather than a domestic homicide and staged crime scene. And the behavioral profile points to multiple young offenders, criminally unsophisticated and impulsive. Imagine this scenario, and think Occam's razor here, the simplest solution to our puzzle. All it would take would be for Jim to have accidentally bumped the right side garage door button as he reached across it to press the left side button. He would be walking through the door as he pressed it and wouldn't hear the right door opening because it would have been going up at the same time that the other one was going down. Remember, his hands are full. He's carrying in the leftovers from Los Cucos as well as two two liters of soda that he had purchased at CVS, adding to the likelihood of a misclick, so to speak. Jim goes inside completely unaware that he had just created a simple and easy path of ingress for any would-be home invaders. A couple hours later, a group of 20-somethings out cruising nice neighborhoods looking for a house to rob drive by and see a garage door wide open. It's the path of least resistance, and they make their move. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mac tried to make the point that I just did to the jury, but his job is more difficult than mine. Remember that attorneys can't testify, they can only ask questions, and Dusay wasn't about to make Seacrest's point for him. Basically all that's accomplished during this segment of Cross is the very clear statement that there are reports of the garage door being opened as early as midnight the night before, and based on Herman's route into the house, the jury is made aware that anyone could have walked right in. The question that is never asked, and this frustrates me to no end, is do you have any reports or sightings of the right side garage door being closed after 10 p.m. on the 22nd? The answer to that question is no, and this is what we're left with. We know that the garage door was open at the very least in the early morning hours of Sunday, and we know that anyone could have walked into the house through that open door. The only evidence whatsoever that the garage door was closed that night is Sandy's statement that she thinks Jim would have closed the door when they got home. And that's it. If we're only working with facts and not assumptions, we're forced to conclude that the garage door was open when Jim entered the house that night. There's simply no evidence to prove otherwise.
As Mac moves on, he wants to discuss more of Doucet's, as Secrets refers to it repeatedly and sarcastically, objective and comprehensive investigation. He's also partial to referring to it as Doucet's quote-unquote investigation. He asked the detective if his objective and comprehensive investigation turned up anything that would indicate that the Melgars had any marriage problems. And as you know, it hadn't. And then Mac asked him if he bothered to check to see if there's been any history of domestic violence in the Melgar home. From the transcript, Mac. And of course, part of your objective and comprehensive investigation, you're going to get on your computer and you're going to find out whether there's been any calls for domestic violence to that location, right? Do say. Not me. Mac. Somebody's going to do it. Do say. I would think it would be a good move, yes sir. Mac. Not only would it be a good move, it would be law enforcement malpractice in a murder investigation where the scenario is that the living spouse could have possibly slaughtered her partner. You're going to want to know what the history is, at least as far as law enforcement might know with respect to that couple, right? That's kind of basic, isn't it? Do say. Yes. Mac. We put a big zero there, right? Because there's nothing, right? Do say. Okay, I didn't know that. Not that I'm aware of. Mac, you're not aware of anything, and please be fair with me. If you were aware of anything, you would certainly know it. That would be something that your antenna would go up real quick. Do say. Yes. And your antenna hadn't gone up on that one, right? No. A little further into cross-examination, Doucet starts to kind of throw Detective Carazal under the bus. If you remember back to Carazal's testimony, he danced around the fact that he was attempting to file murder charges on Sandy with the DA before Carpenter and the rest of the crime scene units had even left the scene. He tried to say that he wasn't actually trying to file murder charges, rather he was just having a conversation about filing charges with the DA. Mac thought that was a premature move considering the fact that at that point they had zero evidence against Sandy. No direct evidence, and she hadn't made any incriminating statements. All they had was the fact that they didn't believe her story, and it didn't fit with their theory of the case. And surprisingly, Doucet agrees. From the transcript, quote, That would be way premature, though. You can agree with that. Doucet. It's fair. Mac. I try to only ask fair questions, because how in the world could you go into the district attorney's office and seek to have a murder charge filed against Sandy Melgar... If, in fact, the investigation is not complete, right? say That's fair. As Mac moves on, Doucet continues to pile on to Carazal. In this next exchange, Seacrest is asking about the fact that no one ever spoke to Herman Melgar after that night. Quote, No member of the Harris County Sheriff's Department or the District Attorney's Office has ever once talked to him again? What do you think about that? say Again, I was not the lead. Mac, if you were the lead, you certainly wouldn't have conducted that type of investigation, would you? Doucet, I would not. It's moments like these where I find myself just shaking my head. I honestly cannot understand how this jury convicted Sandy. I mean, right here, on the record, the lead detective's partner and childhood friend is repeatedly confirming that this was not a thorough investigation. Read the transcripts for yourself. These aren't the only occasions where this happens. I just don't understand how anyone could logically conclude that this case was properly investigated. 
and furthermore be comfortable sending a woman away to prison for 27 years based on an investigation that even the detective working on the case testified was inadequate. I honestly do not get it. Throughout cross-examination, Mac is laying out point by point the elements of the state's case that actually exist, and also the elements that don't exist. I can read it, and I have, but I can't help but feel that it was going right over the jury's head. And mind you, I don't mean to be insulting when I say that. There are a lot of factors at play here. We've all had teachers in school that were easy for us to learn from. We connected with their teaching or presentation style. We've also had those experiences of sitting through a class with a brilliant instructor and walked away not learning a damn thing. I feel like that's what's happening here. Let's look at Sandy's medical issues, for example. This is what the detectives know. The house is full of medications. Sandy told them she has lupus and seizures, both of which affect her memory. They know that. They know that Sandy told them that, to be more accurate. They also know that a few days later, Jim and Sandy's daughter told them that her mom has lupus and seizure disorders, and that the seizures oftentimes result in retrograde amnesia. That's what they know. Sandy says she has medical conditions that explain her lack of memory of the incident, and her statement is corroborated by the only other family member the detective spoke to. And that's it. They never bothered to check into her medical records to confirm or deny these statements. Hell, at trial, Mac asked to say what lupus is, and he says that he has no idea. Seriously? He never even bothered to try to figure out if Sandy's story could be true. But in his defense, he testified, again, that wasn't his job. It was his buddy Carazal's. And Carazal, of course, didn't do it. And again, for clarity, the police did not uncover one single shred of evidence that refuted anything that Sandy said. Nothing. And at this point, the judge puts a stop to the testimony for the day. And I'm going to do the same. Next week, I'll be wrapping up our deep dive into Doucet's testimony. And after that, I think it's finally time to begin our search for truth and justice with the investigation of alternate suspects. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. 
On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. seen the film you know the game now jumanji just got real only at jessington world of adventures featuring daredevil dad mom on a mission and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first jumanji roller coaster an epic adventure awaits world of jumanji only at chessington world of adventures book this summer's must-do day out at chessington.com